In your Bibles, First John. First John, we've, we've come to chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. If you're turning there, I want to remind you again of what First John is and what it's about. First John is a, is a book written. The whole purpose of it is to, uh, to, to, to speak to people who've come to faith in Christ so that they might know that they're believers, that, that they might know that they are, are in Christ, they might know that they have eternal life. And, and John, in writing these things, is, is trying to assure the people to whom he's writing that they indeed are children of God, that they, they will celebrate unity and glory with Him someday. They have eternal life. In fact, that's chapter 5, verse 13. If you mark in your Bibles, this should, verse should be like big star, maybe at the beginning, right? Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, these words are written to believers. Those who have at least, at least professing believers, those who, have, those who have come to faith in Jesus, he says, I want to give you assurance. I want you to know that you have eternal life. And, and, and one thing interesting here, it, it's helpful for us to know how John is giving that assurance because there are many today who, who give assurance all the wrong way. And, and I've seen it, I've, I've heard it, I've seen it enough, I've witnessed it enough, whether it's a preacher, whether it's an evangelist or or even some, privately, someone sharing the gospel with someone, and and you get someone to bow their head and and repeat after you, and and you pray a sinner's prayer. God, I I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Please, Jesus, come into my life. Uh, I want you now. Amen. And so a prayer goes like that. Maybe even someone who's saying that prayer doesn't even know what they're saying, and uh, but they have said these words, and then the person. And I I remember being in a church and a pastor. Kind of is as brief as that, sort of. You know, just talk about how come to the world, come, come to Jesus, he'll make your life better, and then just pray this short prayer, like maybe about four sentences. And he said, Welcome to the kingdom. Now you're a Christian and you will enjoy glory with God in heaven. And, 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 and I'm just like, maybe. But I believe that preacher was giving so many people a false assurance that they can just pray this little prayer, and now they got their ticket, and now they can go live what they want to live. And, and see, John doesn't say, oh, great, now you're a believer, now you're in, now you have eternal life, as true as that is for genuine believers. John never does that. What, what John does is, is he looks to the external fruit. He says, what sort of fruit is in your life? And when the fruit comes, then the assurance comes. The assurance doesn't come right when you pray this prayer that you didn't even know what you prayed. You prayed right after somebody. And, and assurance doesn't come with some kind of feeling in your stomach or some kind of uh, something you can say. No, assurance comes when you can actually see God working in your life. Or as you might say, it's, it's external fruit. It's things on the outside that, that you see how God has changed your life. And, and, and by the way, it's so outside that other people can see that God has changed your life and john is constantly pointing out i mean mostly these these two things are you loving are you loving god are you loving other people and, and so are, are you second second are you obeying god are you walking in a righteous way are you walking in purity and so those those two things are you loving god are you following in his ways and these things come up again and again and again he says right do you do you love god well here's what it looks like if you love god do you love your brother? Well, here's what it looks like if you love your brother. Are, are you obeying God's commands? Here's what it looks like. Are you practicing righteousness? Well, here's what it looks like. And in all this, John's asking his readers to, to look at their lives and to test themselves to see if indeed they are in the faith. And, and John so wants them to pass the test. He's almost giving them assurance, just saying, yes, these things are true and you are in Christ. I mean, even, even look at 1 John chapter 3. Verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children. Or, or look at, look at uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God. You are believers. You are there. But, but he's not saying you are because you prayed this prayer. He's saying you are because I see these things genuinely in your life. And he's so... John so wants them to, to pass this test. He's like the, the teacher who so wants all of his students to get an A. 
And uh, I've, I've been through enough school to know how that works, that a, a teacher, if he wants, everyone can get an A. It makes it really easy. Just, just come to class. If you come to class every day, that's like 50%, all right? And here, I'm going to give you the test beforehand so that when you come, there's no surprise. It's exactly the format. Here's what you've got to fill it out. And amazing, there's some people even who will not get A's in that sort of class. But, but John isn't like lowering the standard so that everyone passes. He's saying, no, that this is a standard of what God calls us to, what he does with a genuine believer, and y- you're there. And so he's not like bringing them up, but he's assuring them, yes, that God is indeed working in your life. And you can see his pastoral heart, how from time to time he addresses these people in 1 John. He, he uses three words primarily. He, he calls them a beloved or he calls them children, or even very dearly, he calls them little children. I mean, just, just look here, like chapter 2, verse 1. My little children. It's like a tender heart, just longing for his children, these he's writing to. I, I so want you to know these things. Or, as our text begins today, with beloved. Beloved, that is loved ones. Loved ones, listen, this is, this is the case. Or in chapter 2, verse 18, children, it is the last hour. Or chapter 2, verse 18, and now little children, abide in him. Or chapter 3, verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. Or chapter 3, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. And, and he goes on and on, I think maybe about a dozen times he's, he's addressing them. It's just his pastoral heart to these people. Now, it's interesting, in 1 John, we don't know much about the circumstances behind John's writing, but we know that he knew these people enough so that he saw their fruit and said, yes, you are believers. But he also had a tender compassion for them. Now, who they are, we don't know. We don't know who he wrote it to. We don't know exactly when he wrote it. But we know that he had a heart and a passion for, for these people. And, and whenever you see this address, like whenever you see him calling people like beloved he, he's he, he's doing so by way of comfort he's doing so by way of pastoral care but he's also doing by way of like neon sign like wake up because what i'm going to tell you is like really important he's like he's like coming back he's saying let me just let me just set it straight for you that this is what you got to do this is what you got to be this is the assurance of the the heart that you have to have and so our text this morning is it as it begins with beloved, means let's pay attention. So everyone, let's, let's pay attention to what he's saying. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. My first point this morning comes from verse 7. I'm simply calling it the old commandment. The old commandment. Look, look at verse 7. It talks about the old commandment twice. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. What John's trying to do here is trying to reassure his readers that what he is writing them is what they've heard before. Like this isn't, this isn't a new thing. It's not like they, they heard one message and believed that only now to have John come by and say, well, yeah, you believe that, but that's not really true. Let, let me tell you what's really true, right? Let, let, me, let, let, me, let, me, let me give it to you straight. No, John was straight from the start, or whoever preached was straight from the start. It's, it's not that they needed to change what they believe. In fact, I just say this, many cults are like this. They, they present something here, and then afterwards, after you're in for a while, the, the true truth really comes out. See, there's a message on the outside that people hear, but then once you've been initiated, come in, then you get the enlightened message. A lot of secret societies do this. Then the Masons have some of this going on, that there's this message on the outside, but 
once you get initiated, there's something else going on on the inside. I, I remember a few years back when Mitt Romney was running for president, I uh, was just thinking about, okay, a, a Mormon president, what, is that okay? What, what, what's that like? And uh, just even looking into Mormonism, and, and much of Mormonism it, it sounds good. I, I would not have a problem with a Mormon president um, because many Mormons are, are good, upright, loyal, loyal people, um, but they do have their secrets. And, uh, I, you know, a lot goes behind the scenes of a Mormon church that is um, it's very bad. On the outside, it looks so good, but it's very bad on the inside. I, I read a book by uh, Judy Robertson, maybe was her name, and out of Mormonism, she talked how everything was a show, but internally there's just this pressure to, to be so right. But, but that can happen in, in legalistic churches as well. But, but one of the things I remember as I was studying and thinking about Mormonism was their initiation rites. In order to be, enter into the temple, you got to go through this baptismal ceremony. And it's really secretive. They don't let... But I found this video on YouTube. You can probably search for it if you want. That someone like brought a camera inside. And so it's, it's kind of rough. But it's like, like, like behind the robe or whatever. And they're, they're watching here. And they're all dressed in these white robes. In this spooky kind of room that was crazy. And, and some of the things that they were saying was just far out. It's like, whoa, this is, this is weird stuff. But they don't want anybody else to know about that. Until they're initiated. And after watching that video... Um, whereas before, I, I wanted to go and visit the uh, temple in Salt Lake. You know, we drive out to California each year to see my, my in-laws, and we go right through Salt Lake City, and it's just so easy for us just to kind of take out. And I saw that video, I said, I don't want anything to do with that place. And it just has to do with the, the secretive nature of that, because there's very little in that ceremony that resembles Christianity at all. See, Christianity is not a secret thing. It's, it's out in the open. We, we don't have secrets here. When people visit Rock Valley Bible Church, um, sometimes I, I talk with them afterwards and I say, well, um, you've experienced Rock Valley Bible Church. This is, this is what we have. We don't have a lot. We're not a lot of people, but we have His Word and we have His people and that's enough. And, and there is something special about having a, a family of believers like we are. Um, Vaughn was even talking with someone this week who goes to a bigger church and just can't even know everybody, but to go to a smaller church where people know one another is very helpful. And, and this woman was kind of envious, just saying, oh, that's the way church should be. But, but that's what we are, and, and certainly we'd like more people to come. And certainly, we want to, But this is what God has for us, and, and never lose the blessing of what we have here. But there's nothing secret about us. What, what you see is what you get. And, and John is saying this, what, what you heard in the beginning is the same thing that I'm telling you. You remember last week when I, I was telling you about uh, how there are some people in the evangelical world who, who really believe that you, you believe upon Jesus for, as your Savior. And then you'll, you'll walk a few years and go by and then you'll follow Him as a disciple, as your Lord, Maybe. Hopefully, that's the intended. You realize that John is, is, is combating that. He says, no, I, I don't have two messages. One is believe in your Savior and then believe and trust and follow your Lord. Now, this is, this is one message. It's follow Christ at all costs. It's, it's love Him supremely. See, there's not some deeper message of, of Christian maturity. It's if you need some, some deeper commitment. There's one message that calls us to complete devotion to Jesus. It's what you heard from the beginning. So you say, what's the message? Well, a good place to summarize that, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. I'll let John summarize what he has been writing to you, because I think he says, I'm writing you no new commandment. So what has he been writing? Well, chapter 1, 5 and, and following. He says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now John heard it from him, and him, chapter 1, verse 1, was from the beginning. And this is the old commandment that they heard. The old commandment is the word that you heard from the beginning. So this is, this is what he's telling you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God's a holy God. He has no imperfection, no impurity in him at all. There's no sin. But we are sinful, and we are alienated to God. We must acknowledge our sin, right? Skip down to verse 8 and 10. If we have, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? Compared to God, we are sinners, if we say, verse 10, that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Where does that end? God is light and we are sinners. 
And we need to acknowledge that. We need to say we're sinners. But rather than just saying we're sinners, we need to confess our sins. That's where verse 9 comes in. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, say, say not just I'm a sinner, but these are sins I have committed and, and I'm seeking, I'm repenting, turning from them and I'm trusting in you, then, then the forgiveness comes and we know that cleansing and we can walk in the ways of God. And that's what verses 6 through 7 are about. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Right? That's saying one thing, practicing another. John always goes on what the practice is, not on what is said. By the way, that's where your children will go. Your children will follow your example, not your words. Do as I say, not as I do. It doesn't work. They're going to do what you do. And then he says, verse 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from, from all sin. Right? Walking in the light as Christ is in the light. Right? There's a, a purity that God brings in our life. Then we have fellowship with one another, and God cleanses us from our sin. That's the message that we have heard from the beginning. See, we can't claim to be forgiven and still walk in darkness because when Christ cleanses us, we will walk in the purity of, of light. And that's the message that John preached. That's the message that his readers heard. He said, I'm writing you no new commandment. Right? Everything in 5 through 10, you know. I'm just reminding you of these things. I'm writing an old commandment you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And I say this, this is the message that we preach at Rock Valley Bible Church every week. Every week, the simple message that God is light and we have sinned, but Christ has bridged that gap as our advocate, as the propitiation for our sins. Now, for some people, that's not enough. Because there's something about human nature that we're always looking for something new. All of us are. Me too. We're always looking for something new. Um, the philosophers in Paul's day, in Athens, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, they used to sit around and do nothing more than, than hearing or talking about whatever's new. What are the new things to go? And we're always looking for something new. We're always looking to get those new clothes materially or, or get that new car or, or get that new iPhone or, or get that new eye blank, Right? We're always just, just looking to get that next, that next gadget. Or, or we're looking online for that next viral video that, that really makes us laugh. Or, or we're, we're looking for that franchise quarterback and sorrow when he gets hurt and pulls a hammy. That's really hard. Or, or we're looking for that, that new movie, right? The December the Star Wars movie's coming out. We're just looking for that new movie, right? We're, we're looking for the next hit. We're, we're looking for whatever's new, whatever kind of comes along our way. And... And the message of the Bible is not like that because the message of the Bible is nothing new. In fact, you can, I've heard it said this way, what's new is not true and what's true is not, help me, new. It's just this old truths. I mean, this book was, was written and completed 2,000 years ago and it's still very applicable to us, but... And it has new applications to us as we deal with the information age or if we, we deal with things that come along or we deal with the, the Muslim onslaught. Of the, but, but it's still the same message, it's still the same hope in Christ that Christians have, have believed on for years. But there's always a newness, right? There's always a, oh, this, this preacher's got this twist. Let, let's go here. Or this teaching, this sounds interesting. Let, let's go here. And John's just writing that, no, no, we got this. This old teaching that you've had from the beginning that is coming to you. Could it be that there were some of the people that John was writing to who, who left just precisely because of this new message? Over in chapter 2, verse 18, uh, John speaks about the Antichrists who are coming. He says, many Antichrists have come. Antichrist, we'll, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. It, it doesn't mean like lots of people think it means, okay? It's not like there's one. Anybody who's against Jesus is Antichrist. Okay, that's what he's talking. They're antichrists, plural. And these have come, and verse 19 talks about how the people went out from us. He says, but they were never really of us. And my guess is that they went after something new. That they weren't content with whatever the, the message was here from the beginning, but they just went out after something new. And I say that because look at verse 20, 21, and 22. But listen, 
You've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. These antichrists may claim knowledge, but you have the knowledge. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Listen, you know and you're discerning enough not to be persuaded by these people probably purporting something new or at least something different because if they're purporting something the same, John wouldn't have any problem with that, but they are purporting something different, presumably new. Listen, at Rock Valley Bible Church, we don't have anything new, but we have the gospel and that's enough. Paul said, not without reason, he said in 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you with superiority of speech, when I testified to you the testimony of God or lofty speech or wisdom, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ him crucified. He said, when I came, it was just the gospel that I was longing to bring, the gospel and its implications. And Paul's message to those in Corinth was singular. It's about Jesus, Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross, bearing our sins. And the God's people, it's enough. Because it says, Jews seek for sign, Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling blocks to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so at Rock Valley Bible Church, there's something about proclaiming the old message that resonates in our heart, that that's what we long to hear. So it was plain, proclaimed from the beginning. It's not any new. The, the hymn writer says it this way. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I'd love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I, I love to tell the story. More wonderful it seems than all the golden fancies of all our golden dreams. I love to tell the story. It did so much for me. And that's now the reason why I tell it now to thee. I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat. What seems each time I tell it so wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some who have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love telling it to people who have never heard the name of Jesus before. That's why I love kids club so much. These kids have, they they come in knowing nothing and... And they leave, they know these Bible verses and they don't even really know what, what they are about. But I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. It's the best line of the whole thing. Right? Those who know the story of the gospel the best are those who really hunger and thirst to hear it again. Just like the rest who maybe don't know it as well. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song will be the old, old story that I have loved so long, right? The pictures we have of heaven is, is Christ crucified, the slaughtered lamb on the throne. To him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be glory, honor, power, and dominion. To the lamb who was slain be power and riches and wisdom and honor and might. That's the old story, or as Paul calls it here, the old commandment. It's what we've heard from the beginning. Is, is that sufficient for you? Is it sufficient for you? Are you looking for something new? Well, Paul gives us a tw- John gives us a little twist because he's going to talk about something new. In, in verse 8, he says this, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is, is already shining. We've seen the old commandment in verse 7 and now we see the new commandment in verse 8. And you might be saying, what are you talking about? How can it be no new commandment that I'm writing to you, but he says it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you? How? What, is he like, um, you know, the, the new philosophy today? Right? Is, is he new orthodox? Is he right, relative today? Is he, what, how can it be new and old at the same time? Well, it's a good, it's a good question. It's not that there's something secret. It's not that there's something more. It's not that there was something lacking. Rather, we get a hint about what John is talking about when he says in verse 18, verse 8, I'm rather, it is a new commandment which is true in him. See, there's something about Jesus that brought forth this new commandment. And I do believe the best way to get an understanding of this is turned in John's Gospel, John chapter 13. Because John wrote John's Gospel. And I think in many ways that the, the epistle of 1 John comments on and brings to light many of the things from the Gospel of John. John 13. 
Trust you remember the scene. This was the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He knew that he'd be betrayed. He knew that his disciples would scatter and that they would be unfaithful to him. And yet he does an amazing thing. Look at chapter 13 of John Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that he loved them to the end, he loved them to tell us. Now, most translations say he loved them right up until the end like this has. But it can also mean that he, he loved them completely or he loved them perfectly or he loved them to the uttermost which I think is a key that sets up the whole chapter showing how great his love for them, even when, verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus still loved them. And it says in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And there he is washing his feet. We don't wash feet in our society today. Our feet aren't so dirty and stinky unless you've been on the trail for a day or two without washing your feet. Right, but you see Jesus, Peter's reaction here in verse 6 about how strange and unusual it was not to wash feet, that happened all the time, but for Jesus the Master to stoop to wash Peter's feet. Just, this is why this is here, I think, just to show how, 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 how awkward this is. He, he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus said. Answered him, if I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And she said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. You got to catch that. These are, these are disciples who are thinking about how great they were. And Jesus washes their feet, even the feet of the one that Jesus knew would betray him. That is love. That is love to the uttermost. That's the object lesson. That's the object and now comes the lesson. Verse 12, and when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he then said to them with dramatic pause, I'm sure, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And after this, then Jesus dealt with Judas and the upcoming betrayal. And for our sake this morning, we're going to skip over that, though, just for time-wise. So that is significant of itself. It just shows how Christ was loving his enemies like we ought to love our, our enemies. But verse 31, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, and you will seek me. And just as I've said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then here's the verses we're looking at. Because he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And there's verse 34. Here's the new commandment I give you. And then he defines what that new commandment is. He says that new commandment is really the old commandment. Really, that new commandment is really the the greatest commandment. 
You remember when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment? He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. And he adds, there's no other commandment greater than these. This, this commandment here in verse 34 to love one another is not new. So why is he calling it new? What's he talking about? I think the new commandment here has to do with the example of Jesus. As opposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, love your neighbor as I loved you. So the standard isn't anymore how we love ourselves, but the standard, I think, is higher. To, to love like Jesus loved us, which is even greater than the commandment in Leviticus chapter 19. It's not so much the newness of it. It's not the content to love. It's the intensity of it. It's the depth of love that Christ is calling us to. It should match the love that Jesus had for our disciples. And when people see that sort of love, they'll know. They will know there are disciples of Jesus. Yep, there they are. They love. Look at how they love. Yep, those are disciples of Jesus. Now, I've often thought that this is evangelistic, and I think that there's a sense where this is evangelistic, where people can see Christians' love for one another and can say, oh, they're, they're Christians, they love one another, they're followers of Jesus. Uh, and that might be true, but I think especially it's, First John, we can identify, yep, there's a body of believers because they're loving one another. And those are followers of Christ because they're loving one another. It's a mark of a church when you have people who genuinely love one another and who are serving one another. And so unsaved people will see that, but also saved people will see that and say, yeah, there's a, there's a genuine church there. It, it's almost as if verse 35 is First John. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples of your love for one another. There's the external fruit that gives you assurance that you're his disciple, that you are, have eternal life. Last week, I spoke about Charles Sheldon's book, In His Steps. When people really came to grips and, and, and thought about, do, do I really love as Jesus loved? Do I really have that love? And where they asked themselves, okay, what would Jesus do, right? The, the, the love as Jesus loves just taking it to that next level and saying am i really doing that and as i mentioned the book that that work of fiction right revival broke out in that town because the the truth here verse 35 people are saying oh there's something different going on there's something supernatural going on there there's something that can't be explained going on there jesus must be in their midst and then people started coming and saying why why are you loving this way and well because because of Christ in me. And that's where revival broke out. When, when our love was, was just so beyond normal. And so really I ask you. Do you love beyond normal? Do you love as, as Jesus loved? Do you love to the uttermost? Or is your love just like the love of many? You know, Jesus said in the. Sermon on the Plain, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which he was given in a different setting in Luke's Gospel. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. You know that bars, you know, places where alcoholic beverages are served and people frequent there every Friday night, every Saturday night, they're basically church to the alcoholics. Because a bartender gives love. And a fellow drunkard gives love. And great sacrifices can be made, right? Hey, I'm on my way. Oh, I got in an accident. Hey, could you come and get me? Absolutely, they'll go. So what, what benefit is that? I mean, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. You pick out any club, right? whether it's a, a theater group that we're involved in, whether it's a fencing club that the REITs are involved in, whether it's your aerobics class or whether it's your whatever, your, your basket weaving class or whatever. You, you get a group of people and there's, there's a common interest and there's a love and they often will sacrifice and will care for one another. Your AA meeting, people will, will start caring. And Jesus is saying basically what? 
what's, what's, sinners have these clubs, and are we just a club like that? And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He's talking here about an extraordinary Jesus-like love that even extends itself beyond those who are comfortable. That's the new commandment. His example of washing the feet, the lowliest of tasks, is to be emulated. John chapter 13, verse 15, right where we are. He, he says this. He says, um, John chapter 15, 13, verse 15. Here we are. I'm, I'm looking down here. As I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Maybe it's not verse 15. It's, it's in there someplace. Oh, here it is. Yeah, it is. That's right. I was in chapter 15. I've given you an example that you should follow as, as I do. Now, some people, some church have taken this to mean the ordinance of foot washing, which is okay. Um, like the Lord's Supper, we have baptism and we have foot washing. Brethren churches do this, and that's, they do that periodically, mostly yearly, and they wash each other's feet. That, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but I, I, I do fear that might just limit the scope and what the love, the extent of love should be. That, that really what Jesus is talking about is just a, a deep humility, others-centered love. Because that's what love is, is it not? Is it not others-centered? So if you think about yourself, I mean, because obviously here's the old commandment, right, is to, is to love and to love the gospel. And the new commandment is to love as Jesus loved. As you even think in your own minds about, okay, am I loving like that? How about this? When you encounter people, is it about you or is it about them? Because love is about them. It's not about you. Because see, isn't that love? Love is external focused. So you just, why don't you just rewind, right? This whole last week, you had conversations with people. How much did you make it about you? And how much have you made it about other people and their interests and the things that they, that's love. Extending maybe even to people that you're not comfortable with, who's not going to, Give back to you. There, there is love. Isn't that what we looked at last week in terms of this example? Go back to First John. Here we are. First John chapter two. We looked last week at verses three through six, and we ended in verse six. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We ought to love like Jesus loved. <clears throat> and one of the ways he loved, one of the ways he walked is he had a deep, 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 into the end, to the foremost, love for his disciples. And, and in fact, this is how we know his love. Chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 John, right? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus laid down his life, and, and Jesus sacrificing upon a cross is how we know that he loved us, and so how do you know that you love the brothers? How much are you laying down your life for your brothers? Or do you love at your convenience? Have you been stretched in your love? This week, have you been stretched in your love? How do you respond? Someone calls you up to do something inconvenient. Are you, are you willing to pursue that? Now, all of us have limits, okay? So... I mean, this is like the Good Samaritan that, that, that presses us beyond our limits because we don't have infinite amount of time to, to spend with infinite amount of people, okay? So there, there is an area of conviction here. But I, I just say this. You've all been inconvenienced this week, probably. Hopefully, if you haven't been inconvenienced, perhaps it's because your life is all about you. But if you have been inconvenienced, it might be because your life is about others. And how have you responded to those inconveniences? Because... Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to, verse 16, lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the new commandments, love, love deeply, and even love unto death. In fact, that's what verse 8, chapter 2, our text again, it speaks about. This is the new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in him. I mean, this, 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 this true, this new commandment is in Jesus, is where this commandment is. I would say, 
It was true in him, and in him is where you get your strength. But it's true not only in Christ, but catch this, it's true in him and what? It's in you. It is a new commandment, which is true in him and in you. See, the reality is that those who know Christ have the love of God working in themselves as it was working in Jesus. Now, it might flesh itself out a little bit different. Jesus was the perfect man. We're not. But the reality is this, is that if you have eternal life, you've trusted God, you've been born of Him, He is in you, and it's going to flush out in this way. And if you don't see it flushing out this way, you doubt whether you have that, that power. Right? The, the Energizer Bunny battery. If the battery is in there, is energized, then your toy is going to go, and that bunny is going to be banging that drum, Right? But if that bunny's not banging the drum, then something's wrong with the battery. It's not an energizer, right? It's, it's a dead battery. And if, if you're not banging that drum, if you're not out there loving the inconvenience, then maybe it's because your power source isn't there. And maybe it's because you don't have eternal life. That's what John is saying. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. This is the message, right, that, that comes. And, and John, I mean, just, we can just pull from so much from First John because it's just over and over and over again. And so you get like the whole book every Sunday. But that's okay. Beloved. Let us love one another. And here's why we should love one another. Because love is from God. The love comes from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. See, if, if you love, it's because you've been born of God and because you know God. See, the reality is those who know Christ, God is in them. The new commandment is there. And it's working itself out because God changes people. And when you love, it's because God has changed you. This way, with loving others is, is one of John's core and essential ways that he says, know that you have eternal life by, by the fact that God is in you and He's worked in you and you can see He's working in you by how you love. And maybe it's before I was a Christian, I didn't love. It's all about myself. But now that, now that Christ has come, there's this love that, that flows out that makes my life be about other people and not about me. Well, that leads nicely to my last point. We've seen the Old Commandment. We've seen the new commandment, and now I'm just calling it the love commandment. It's, it's, really, it's really not a commandment, but it's all about love. And he's picking up this theme from the end of verse 8, where he talks about just this darkness passing away and the true light is shining because in your life, God's going to create, remove the darkness and continue to show you the light so you continue to, to love in a greater, greater way. And he picks up this light and darkness theme. He says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now again, like in chapter 1, John's going to pick up this theme of light and darkness. And again, like chapter 1, he's going to have people who are professing one thing but they're living another. And he's always going with the life. He's not going with the profession. He doesn't go with the claim. He goes with the evidence. And the claim here is that, right, according to verse 9, I am in the light. I am in the light. I have seen the light. And I, I'm there. He says, but if you say you're in the light, verse 8, but you walk in darkness... He says that the consequence there is that you're in darkness. You're still. So if I say I'm in the light, but I hate my brother, I'm in the darkness. So you can say, yes, look at how I'm, li- I'm in the light. And I just say, do you hate your brother? Then I don't care what you say. We're, we're, we're going to go with what you do. You're, you're a hater, not a lover. So it, it goes like this. So professing to be clean, but really being dirty. So this is like... Um, like, 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 like the child who had a fun time playing, making mud pies, right, out, out, outside, and then came in just filthy dirty. And mom, you know, just mud all over the place, and it's okay. Parents, you can wash the mud, okay? Let your kids have some joy. You're out, and, and they come back in, and you say, you, Johnny, need to take a shower. And so you see Johnny again in about 20 minutes, and he's filthy dirty as much as he was. He says, I took a shower. 
Well, maybe his definition of shower doesn't match your definition of shower, but he can say that he took a shower. He didn't take a shower because he's covered in filth. That's exactly what he's saying. I'm claiming to be clean, but I hate my brother. I still have dirt. I, I don't care what you're claiming to be. Or let's take another illustration. Right? You, your child comes to you with cookie crumbs on his face, his lips. You know how children are sometimes. They don't, they don't clean their lips entirely, right? You can see it over there. And, and you say, you've had some cookies, haven't you? And the child says, I didn't have any cookies. I'm clean. I'm in the light. I'm pure. What, what's happening around the lips, though, huh? Darkness is around the lips. Hating a brother. I don't care how much the child professes to be in the light. They're, they're in the dirty. Or, you know, sometimes there's a, 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 a new door that's been painted or a new wall that's been painted or a new picnic bench has been painted, whatever, and it says wet paint, do not touch. And you might go and look at there and they've got some fingerprints and some handprints on there. And you come to your child and you look at your child and what's on their hand? Right, the orange color from the paint. And you say, did you touch that paint? And they say, no, no, I'm pure, I'm in the light. And I don't care how much they profess their purity if they've got the paint on their fingers and on their hand that matches even, look at that. You go with what they did. You go with the evidence. You not, don't go with what they, what they say. And that's exactly what John is talking about here. That's exactly John's argument over and over and over again. You can say what you are to your blue in the face. It's what, how it works itself out. Now, when he uses this illustration of light and darkness, know that he's talking about moral purity. And we know that from chapter 1, verse 5, that, that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. We're talking about God's radiant purity. He, he dwells in unapproachable light. His, his, his holiness is there. It's talking about purity. It's not talking, catch this, about intellectual understanding or enlightenment, like sometimes we talk about that today. Oh, yeah, I have seen the light. I understand. Uh, boom, I got the light bulb, right? I, I understand. Because many of today's brightest people who are in the light, enlightenment, they know actually live in the deepest of depravity. See, it's, it, this isn't an intellectual thing. This isn't an intellectual ascent. This is a, this is a purity. I'm professing purity. I, yes, I'm pure with God. And he says, okay, well, let's, let's look at it. How, how are you dealing with your brother? And John gives us an illustration of that. Chapter 3, verse 11. Look right there. The illustration of brothers. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. And again, we go back to the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. His deeds were evil, his brothers were righteous, and so he hated him, and so he murdered him. But we're not. We're supposed to love. We're not supposed to murder. Do not be surprised, brother. The world hates you. It's like... Abel was righteous and Cain was unrighteous and the unrighteous hated the righteous. And that's how it is. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? How do we know? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here we come back to this thing, right? You love, you have eternal life. If you don't love, you hate and if you hate, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever hates his brother is guilty of murder. If you hate, you're a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But the one who loves has eternal life abiding in him. We see John just, just coming around again to the same thing. It is love. And so I ask you this. Do you, do you love or do you hate? It's really, it's really what's difficult about this is that he, only, he doesn't say, well, you mostly love or you sort of hate. Or you're, you know, none of this, right, scale of 1 to 10, are you, you know, sometimes you get phone surveys every now and then. Let me read a statement and you, you tell me whether you completely disagree, whether you somewhat disagree, whether you somewhat agree, or whether you somewhat, very much agree. And so you got this scale, right, 1 to 10, right, you, you go into a, the ER, right, and they ask you, how, how much does it hurt? Scale of 1 to 10. And you say, oh, I've got a 7. Oh, it's really hurting. I remember one time when I had a kidney stone. This is for you, Michelle. I had a kidney stone this past week. And uh, I, this is like the first time I had a kidney stone. You remember we're at St. Anthony's. And I was on, I was on the floor like rocking back and forth going, oh, oh, this is hurting. And he said, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, what are you? Do you remember what I said? 
I said, 10, definitely, is what I said. But I was on the scale way over here. There's no scale here. It's either a love or a hate. That's where it makes it hard, but God will reveal that in our, in our hearts. The sign of a believer is love. Do you love? And maybe a good place to look at that would be just, say, Matthew 18, where Jesus tells the story of the one man who owed so much debt and was forgiven him. And then when he was owed just a little bit, he didn't forgive the guy but threw him in prison. And Jesus says, right, that you need to forgive as has been forgiven you. And how can you, who've been forgiven so much, not forgive there? And so I just think about, just think about relationships in your life and forgiveness and openness granted. Are there grudges there? I think that's, that's love. Jesus, you, John 13, didn't, didn't grudge Judas, even though he knew that Judas was going to go at him and basically be the means of his death. In fact, none of the disciples noticed anything different about how Jesus dealt with Judas. Oh, go, what you do quickly? You're like, oh, okay, well, he's going to got some errand going that Jesus is sending him on. <laughs> no, he said, you go out and get your betrayers and come so you can get me and kill me, is what he's saying. And they had no clue because he was not holding a grudge. He was not harboring it against them. And even when being nailed on the cross, you remember what he said? Father, forgive them. They do not what, don't know what they do. And so when people sin against you, are you, are you forgiving of them? Are you holding this grudge? Do you have grudges against people right now? I would say this. A grudge is hatred, and hatred is not love. And I say, by God's strength and grace, rid yourself of grudges. Matthew chapter 6, And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, we taught us to pray, said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. There's the grudge. I want to forgive. I want God to hold me to the standard to forgive me just like I forgive other people. That's what Jesus says. So if you're not forgiving other people because you hold a grudge against them, what's God going to say? You're holding that grudge and you've been forgiven so much and you're not. And remember, the, the man in Matthew 18 was thrown into the outer darkness. I mean, this is life and death things, church families. Just, and, and I know that you've all experienced far more than a, a, against me, many of you, just sins against you and, and things have gone wrong and, and people have hated, people have done things to you. And I'm telling you, it's a matter of life or death. Just as far as it depends on you, be at peace with them and say, vengeance is mine. I will repay and just give it to the Lord and seek by God's grace to deal with graciously and humbly and, and loving them as much as you can. Well, just, just quickly, I just want to look at John chapter 9. I think the best way to understand, this is the last time the light and the darkness theme is going to come up in the, the gospel of 1 John. And, and Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It happens in chapter 8 and then chapter 9. He gives light to a man who is walking in darkness. He gave light to the blind man. And, and I do believe this light, and we see even here people who hate Jesus and they are going after Jesus and Jesus says you're still in darkness just like First John 2 verse 10 11 say. He passed by, chapter 9, verse 1. He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, he was born blind? And Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And he went and washed and came back. Seeing, here was a man in darkness. God gave him light. Jesus gave him light. Now, what I want you to do is notice how the, the Pharisees responded to Jesus because there was hatred there. And Jesus is going to say, there's hatred there. You're still in darkness. Look at verse 13. Look at how great the hatred is. Right, because verses 8 through 12, right, they're going to the neighbor and everything, and there's a stir. And, and, and they brought this man, the Pharisees, and the man who had formerly been blind. That was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. How's that for love, right? The great miracle took place, but he did it on the Sabbath. He can't be from God. 
But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there's a division among them. So they said again to the blind men, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. And, and, and they didn't believe that he was born blind. So I went to the parents and said, what's, what's this deal? And then they come back a second time, verse 24. And they called the man who had been born blind and said, give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner, right? And, and for them, sinners, it doesn't mean like us today when people are, are sinful. Oftentimes it means we need to reach out to them in love and compassion and show them Jesus. And he said, no, they're sinners. Look at how bad Jesus is. They hated Jesus. And he just said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, now I see. I said to you, what do you do to you? How do you open your eyes? He said, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? That's like the best line in this whole deal. You want to, you want to follow him? And then they, they turned against this guy. He says, uh, no, not, not against him. You're his disciple, right? We're disciples of Moses. He says, um, we know God has spoken from Moses. Him, we don't know where he comes from. Verse 30, man, it's, what is it amazing? You don't know where he comes from, yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the, the world began has anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If, if this were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered, you were born in sin, verse 1, and, and would you teach us? So they cast him out. So they got mad at him too, thinking that this man's going to... He's just saying the facts. And then... Jesus encounters this man and, and he finds out who Jesus is. And here, verse 39 through 41 is what we're going to look at just as we close. For Jesus said, Judge, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. There he is. So that those who don't see, he's going to give sight to. Those who see will become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. And here he says, Are we blind? Are we in the darkness? And so you put all this together. Well, they hate Jesus, and they basically hate this man for telling the truth. And as the light was shining, John 3, the men loved darkness rather than they loved the light. They wanted to pursue the darkness. They're professing to be in the light. Of anybody professing to be in the light, it's these Pharisees. But yet they're in total darkness. And Jesus said, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Listen, because they didn't love as John says in 1 John 2, 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And that's exactly the case of these Pharisees. They hated, therefore they were in darkness and they didn't even know that they were in darkness. They didn't even know where they were going, but they professed great light. And I don't care what you profess. If you're not loving, you're in the darkness. So I exhort you to love one another. I exhort you to, to see the love that God has worked in your heart and be encouraged by that. That God might do a, a wonderful work in your life and life of the church as we seek to know that we have eternal life. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use just the, the words, my feeble words, this message this morning, God, to convict sin where conviction should be. God, for those on the the fence who are tottering and saying, you know, I, I really, really don't, don't love. I'm into myself. God, I pray that you'd convict them and that they would have soft hearts, that they would, God, just come to you. God, and, and for those who First John is really disturbing, God, if they have a tender conscience, God, show them, God, even the, the feeble fruit that there is. And Father, I would pray for the Pharisee among us, God, who doesn't love and who, who hates and yet thinks everything's okay because everything's good on the outside because they, they are here at church more than anyone else. God, that they've got the religious thing down. Father, I pray that they would God, realize their sin and realize they're just like the Pharisees. They might say they have no guilt. God, but Jesus said your guilt remains. I pray that you'd convict them, that they'd come to Jesus and that you would work in their hearts and that they would genuinely love, that they would know that they have eternal life. God, use these words. And, and I, I pray, God, even as we, as we break now, as a, as a meeting, as we've fed on your word, we're soon to feed on the potluck. God, many have brought food. Uh, Lord, I pray that be a great opportunity to love one another. God, as we eat together and as we talk with one another and as we have opportunities to be stretched, God, may it be about other people, not about us. God, so be, be our grace and be our help. God, bless that food to our bodies. 
God bless our fellowship together. And God, I, I pray this would be a place that, that would genuinely love, as Jesus told us in the new commandment, not, not just even as we love ourselves, but love as Christ loved. God, so help us to live out that new commandment that we might have the joy of following Jesus. We might have the joy of knowing that we have eternal life, that as the church's one foundation says, through toil and tribulation, God, there'll be a day in which we are with you in glory and the great church victorious will be the church at rest. May we aim for being the church at rest with you in the splendor of your glory because we have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.